Welcome, everyone, to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I am your co-host, historian and guide, Eric Lindblade. And as always, I am joined by my co-host, historian and guide, Jim Hessler. So, Jim, where are we picking up on tonight's episode? Well, last time on part one of Longstreet, we were introduced to Lieutenant General James Longstreet. We did a little bit of his background, some biographical information, and militarily, we took Longstreet and Robert E. Lee up through the end of 1862. So tonight we're going to pick up with the pivotal year of 1863 and hopefully carry all the way through till the close of July 1st. So lots more Longstreet coming up, part two, here on the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. And Eric, before we start part two, do you have a disclaimer you need to read? I do have a disclaimer I need to read from our legal representation, Daniel Sickles. I'm speaking for myself. Jim's speaking for himself. We are in no way speaking for any organizations that we are a part of. So these are strictly our own opinions. And you know, Eric, I got to say, we've had some super fans reach out to us and say, what's that all about? It just is because we just feel like doing that so that there's no confusion. We don't represent anyone besides Jim and Eric. So, with that, Jim, tell our listeners about tonight's great sponsors. Once again, we are coming to you from Gettys Gear, 777 Baltimore Street in the old Gettysburg Village. They are right across from the Tour Center. You guys know it by now, Gettys Gear's philosophy is to produce high-quality products at reasonable prices with exceptional customer service. They've got a wide array of unique and interesting Gettysburg-themed items made right here in Gettysburg. Call them. If you can't stop in, give them a call at 717-334-3747 or email info at gettysgear.com. Gettys Gear, history with a sense of style, and the home of the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. In addition, last time we welcomed a brand new sponsor to the show, and they are back again, TR Historical. Now, TR Historical's mission is very much like ours. Their goal is to not make history boring and stuffy, but they want to support the engagement and fan enthusiasm towards history in fresh and fun ways. Now, TR Historical is a family-owned small business from Easton, Pennsylvania, and they offer one-stop shopping for people like us and like our super fans who love their history. Now, they do not limit their product line to only Civil War items. They have medieval history. They have the American Revolution, presidential history, World War One, World War II, of course, the Civil War, and many more time periods covered. Check out their Irish Brigade items, Lincoln, Grant-themed shirts, some of the coolest bookmarks I've ever seen. Uh, they have magnets and stickers. Drinkware. Eric, who doesn't want to drink a pint with Florence Nightingale or have their coffee with John Adams? I know I do. And Siege Warfare Civil War strategy card games, so you can be just like Pickett's Division in the movie, playing cards around the campfire. Many, 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 many more items. Visit their website at trhistorical.com or email them. Support at trhistorical.com. They offer free U.S. shipping. Worldwide shipping is available. And super fans, save 10% by using the promo code 
super fan at checkout. You can also follow them on Facebook or on Twitter. And again, that is trhistorical.com. Look for Teddy Roosevelt in their logo. Thanks again, super fan Dave, for sponsoring another episode. So, Eric, do we have any quick housekeeping? Just a few things. Uh, you can find us on social media on Facebook at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast, on Twitter at Gettysburg Pod, on Instagram at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast, or you can email us at gettysburgpodcast at gmail.com. We also have folks reaching out to us saying, hey, how can we help the show? Easiest ways to help the show is one, write us a review on the podcast platform of your choice. Folks, we harp on it every episode, but it really does matter. The more reviews we get, the more we get incorporated into those algorithms that I don't fully understand, but they tell me are really important, that allows new listeners to potentially find the show. And that's the thing. We want to keep growing. We want to keep getting bigger and more people hearing about what we're doing at the Battle of Gettysburg. Also, if you are so inclined to give a financial donation, you can. A couple ways you can do that. You can give a one-time donation via PayPal at www.paypal.me backslash Gettysburg Podcast. Or you can sign up for our new Patreon page where you can give a recurring monthly donation. And you can do that at www.patreon.com backslash Gettysburg Podcast. So for everyone who has given so far, we thank you so much. And ultimately, your donations are allowing us to stay on the air and keep this show free for all, which is, I think, ultimately, our mission is to bring the very best Gettysburg content we can to as many people as possible. So thank you again. So with that, let's get into Longstreet. All right. Very good. So last time we saw General Longstreet, he was basically at Fredericksburg, and we talked about the defensive success that he had there, and also his growing esteem and stature with Robert E. Lee and in the Army of Northern Virginia. Now, in late February of 1863, Longstreet was given an independent command in the Department of Virginia in North Carolina. His 43,000-man command included Pickett and Hood, uh, which were detached from Lee's army. Their general directions were to protect the approaches to Richmond from the south and the east. So this is going to kind of be a theme, too, as we get into 63 with Longstreet. His stature has grown to such a level that he maybe starts thinking and talking more about independent command and maybe, you know, how he can kind of get away from Lee's army and kind of uh, kind of stretch his own wings a little bit. Longstreet detractors often portray that kind of like to the nth degree. You know, they portray him as this scheming villain, you know, who's trying to get out from under Robert E. Lee's thumb, you know, this disloyal subordinate and that sort of thing. You know, again, let's look for a middle road here. I certainly think it appropriate for a man of Longstreet's abilities to want to try out his own command. And frankly, obviously, the Confederate government felt the same way, you know, given this assignment uh, down around Suffolk. So, Confederate Secretary of War increasingly urged Longstreet to make an advance against Suffolk, Virginia, and the gathering of food and supplies. So although originally he's supposed to be blocking these approaches to Richmond, the assignment increasingly becomes a supply gathering. I think this fits in with an interesting period in Longstreet's life, which kind of moves from really the, the fall of 1862 into the spring of 1863, where Longstreet is still communicating with his old friend Joe Johnson. Yep. 
Uh, he's suggesting that maybe he be sent out west, mm-hmm. uh, move away from the Army in Northern Virginia. Shortly after Fredericksburg, Longstreet suggests to Lee, in his words, one corps could hold the Rappahannock while the other was operating elsewhere. February of 63, he makes an even more specific request of basically detaching part of the Army in Northern Virginia going out west to relieve some of these more endangered areas. I think at this point we would see Longstreet sort of falling into what we would consider kind of the western block of Confederate support. I think his mind is starting to look to the west, not so much what's in the east. So as we look at this, this is all part and parcel of what's going on. I think it's interesting with Lee. Lee would know that Longstreet's starting to kind of gaze his eyes elsewhere. And here's Lee giving Longstreet Maybe a chance for that independent command, which you could look at it a couple ways. One, you're trying to maybe placate a subordinate to let them scratch right. that itch, if you will, right. which is not a bad idea. And it also, it frankly gives Longstreet a chance to show what he can do. Yeah. yeah and no so it fits into a lot of different narratives where it's not just what's going on in the Eastern Theater, but it's Longstreet looking to the West. And also a lot of the decisions that are going to be made in the, the quote unquote Suffolk campaign are going to be logistically driven. Mm-hmm. They need food, they need supplies, and that part of Virginia has it, including eastern North Carolina, which is part of that block as well. So we see a lot of different things at play in early 1863. Yeah, and you know, back to that Lee dynamic for a little bit, while I agree Lee is supportive, I mean, the way I kind of interpret all of this, you know, we all know that ultimately Lee is a Virginia-centric, Army of Northern Virginia-centric commander. And what I see in the correspondence going back and forth between them, and I'm paraphrasing, but what I'm seeing is, you know, Lee and Longstreet kind of starting by um, exchanging advice and suggestions and comments. But there is sort of this undercurrent, I think, and I'm paraphrasing, but of Lee kind of saying... Very good. But, you know, when I need these guys back, remember, I'll send for them and they're going to come back to my army. And I think, you know, you see Longstreet kind of starting out with, of course. And then over time, I think the letters kind of progressively like, well, you know, maybe, maybe I could put them to better use if they stayed here kind of things. So if nothing else, I think it's kind of an interesting dynamic to look at in some of the correspondence. Not a tug of war, because that might be a little bit too strong, uh, but a little bit of sort of a push and a pull in terms of Lee, I think, reminding everybody, this is a great assignment, but when I want him back, I want him back kind of thing. And to me, it also shows during this period, Longstreet trying to sort of figure out where is his place in the song. Yep, yep. You know, he is a unique individual right now. He is the non-Virginian in the hierarchy. And it's very interesting that you know, Longstreet's background, born in South Carolina, raised in Georgia, has some connections to Alabama. That tends to, I think, put Longstreet more in a Western mm-hmm. mindset. Maybe he's feeling maybe my best place is out West, which I think is kind of an interesting factor to look at as Longstreet is moving into 1863 and how he's going to adjust to this new really for lack of it for the first time, independent command for him. Yeah, and it's important because the, you know, the Longstreet critics, as well as supporters, but Longstreet critics have always been of the the like that, you know, Longstreet fails at independent command and that sort of thing. So it's all sort of interesting in, in trying to decide what we think Longstreet is or isn't capable of doing. By April, Longstreet had laid siege to Union forces in and around Suffolk, Virginia. And militarily, the siege resulted in part 
because Longstreet did not get requested support from the Confederate Navy, and he determined that he would otherwise lose too many infantrymen in a direct assault. So again, you know, kind of some common themes here. Longstreet seems to be able to think, you know, be into coordinated assaults, you know, multifaceted, bringing in the Navy and that sort of thing. But when he's not able to get that, he also seems to realize the futility of just making a bunch of frontal assaults. So he kind of adopts this siege mentality instead. And really both sides, the North and the South, are going to kind of dig in uh, for what's going to turn out to be kind of a uh, protracted siege. And really the siege, if they capture Suffolk, great. Right. But really the, the role Longstreet has to pin down these Union forces and get so supplies. that he so gets supplies. Right. Make sure they can't operate. And really, and we'll see this again in a few months, Southeast Virginia and Eastern North Carolina is always this dagger kind of pointed at the Confederates in Virginia. You know, if you want to sever supply lines, this is the area to do it. If you want to make life difficult. And it's also the worry Lee always had was an inland invasion of Virginia through North Carolina or coming up through Southeast Virginia. Yep. He always was cognizant of this. So it serves a couple of purposes. And I think it also gives the Confederates a chance to gather the supplies they need, but also pin down a force yeah. that needs to be pinned down. And by all accounts, I've never seen one to the con- a credible account of the contrary. The supply gathering phase is successful. Yes. I mean, badly needed supplies are gathered for the uh, Confederate cause. Again, the critics kind of snicker at the siege aspect of it, but if you look at the big picture here, Longstreet is doing what he was instructed to do, and you know what? Sorry, critics, if he's just not going to launch Napoleonic frontal assaults for the hell of it. You know, he's doing what he's supposed to be doing and doing it in, you know, really the most effective way that he can. And long term, the food and the forage and supplies gathered is much more important to Lee's army than capturing Suffolk exactly. for a day or two, because eventually Longstreet's going to get pulled away, and Union troops are going to come back and take right. it over anyway. Right. We see Longstreet excelling in what his role is, but we do see him, I think, having some issues at times of having to deal with others. Yep. You know, DHL, he has to deal with Robert E. Lee, he has to deal with the Confederate Navy. That might play a role later in Longstreet's career. And might another person he has to deal with uh, during this period as well is... Harrison, Henry Thomas Harrison, the newly hired scout or spy, if you prefer. Uh, He had, during this period, he had arrived with a letter of introduction from the Secretary of War. And as we know, Longstreet, uh, within a month or two, is going to put Harrison to work for other uses. Uh, So I just kind of wanted to call that out. Yeah, so by the end of April... Uh, the supply operation is suspended, not because of any failure on Longstreet's part, because Hooker, it's going to be time for that spring offensive in the East, and Lee is worried about what Joe Hooker is going to do, and so Lee and Richmond want Longstreet's guys back. Now, it's going to take a few days for Longstreet to bring in his widely dispersed supply wagons, but by early May, Longstreet and his men were en route for Richmond, while Chancellorsville was being fought without him. So if you ever kind of wondered, why did Longstreet miss the Chancellorsville campaign? This is why, because he was off on that independent assignment, and he is en route back when the battle is fought. 
Now again, I'm just going to point out, Longstreet critics have said, some subsequent historians have said, have criticized Longstreet for quote-unquote delaying, not moving fast enough, depriving Lee of the manpower at Chancellorsville. But folks, Lee himself appears to have not expected this. And again, the more modern biographies, uh, such as Jeff Wirtz, have pretty much labeled that accusation as ludicrous. And I would recommend, you know, we've often talked about the importance of the official records for the Gettysburg campaign. Yeah, yeah. I would recommend read the official records for the period around Chancellorsville. There's, I think, some interesting things before the Battle of Chancellorsville and also immediately after they're going to play a Gettysburg role. And what we really see is the communication between Lee and Longstreet is Lee is very worried, when do I need to pull Longstreet back to get him back here? I, I know he needs to gather food, but when do I find that kind of middle ground mm-hmm. when's the right time? And really, Joseph Hooker kind of steals a march on Lee. Yeah, right. And this kind of causes Lee to scramble a little bit. So what he's now telling Longstreet, I need you back. Longstreet's arguing, well, I've got to move these wagons. Right. I've got to get these supplies I'm all, I'm ready. I'm in the middle of this thing. Here. You know, that's going to take time because last thing the Confederates want in a foraging operation is in neat means of getting back quickly. They just burn what they gathered. Yeah, that, that, or that, get rid of it. Then the whole thing would have been pointless. Right. So Longstreet is under a time constraint, but he's also under a constraint of the work he needs to do. So I think it's really, you read this correspondence and you're seeing Lee is very much anxious to get Longstreet back. Obviously so. But he's also not wanting to undo the work that Longstreet right. has done. So I think this idea that Longstreet drags his feet, I don't really get the sense of it. If you read what Longstreet says, it seems very rational to me. He doesn't seem as if he's saying, you know, this is way too much more than's being expected of me. I can't do it. You know, I think he's being very realistic in his time frame. And also, had the Confederates had better intelligence of when Hooker was starting this, uh, they probably would have been able to adapt a lot better. Now, the takeaway from this is that Longstreet misses Lee's greatest mm-hmm. victory of the war. Yeah. But to me, what I think is very interesting is it shows the Confederates that they can win a victory with diminished troops if necessary. Yeah. You know, the sure. idea is that if we utilize the rail, our interior lines, we can basically move troops yep. around and shift them to as we need to to gain this. So I think it starts to sort of change the thinking of the Confederate high, you know, sort of high echelons of the Confederate government. Yeah, I think... A couple of things I would add there, too. And ultimately, obviously, the Chancellorsville quote-unquote victory for Lee is ultimately one that is won offensively and through maneuver, which, again, is something we need to think about when we think about this offensive versus defensive question, too. The other thing that strikes me, too, is, you know, we always make such a big deal at Gettysburg. You know, Gettysburg was fought without Jackson. What would Lee have done with Jackson there? And, well... We did a very popular episode on that very question, but I digress. Uh, but you know, you think about this in reverse. Yeah, but also Lee fought Chancellorsville without Longstreet, which is equally as important. So yeah, this idea of doing more with less, I do think I agree with you. I think that's something that comes into play more as we get to Gettysburg. And, you know, I've told this story before, but you know, one time I was talking about, you know, why the Confederates didn't win at Gettysburg and all that, and the guy raised his hand and said the Confederates couldn't win because they were outnumbered, which, of course, is ridiculous. The Lee is getting used to maneuver. He's getting used to offensive tactics, all of these things that are, frankly, at times, 
going to be able to overpower a more numerous army. So he does this without Longstreet at Chancellorsville. He's going to do it without Jackson at Gettysburg. And, you know, we'll see, obviously, what the results turn out to be. And we should add, at critical moments of the Battle of Chancellorsville, Lee is without Jackson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Jackson leaves the stage on May 2nd. So who steps up? Jeb Stewart, A.P. Hill, guy, you know, guys that we criticize exclusively in that Gettysburg limelight are guys who step up. Longstreet's old buddy, Jubal Early. Right, right. Yeah, and I think if we look at this, the numbers, I mean, having 15,000 or so extra soldiers would have certainly helped at Chancellorsville. But I think if anything, what we see at Chancellorsville is at times, Lee is not only operating as an army commander, he's almost operating as almost a core commander. Yeah, right. At, at times, times he's all like over it. the place. Right. I, mean, I think having right. Longstreet's presence Think about Lee can attend to what's going on west of Fredericksburg. Mm-hmm. Longstreet can attend to what's going on in Fredericksburg. You know, mm-hmm. they, so I think having Longstreet's presence certainly would have helped matters. But that's not to say that Longstreet's dragging his feet. Don't right. get us wrong there. But right. you know, I think it was just a the best the Confederates can make of the situation. And the other thing too, I've seen historians, biographers, critics out and out label the Suffolk campaign as an, a quote unquote failure. And I don't see that. I don't see no. where it's a failure. So maybe, you know, you know, lost cause people, maybe I'm just missing something there. I don't know. All right. Should we bring him into Richmond now and kind of start planning for the, uh, the big campaign? Absolutely. It's, they're shaping up now. And, and I think we should note Lee never gets out of his mind this invasion of the North. Mm-hmm. It gets thrown off because of, Burnside's movements in December. It gets thrown off because of Hooker's campaign, but Lee never fully gets out of his mind wanting to bring the war to the North. Right. And this now, what Lee thinks will win the war for the Confederacy, is beginning to sort of move away from what Longstreet thinks might win the war for the Confederacy. So we begin to see a little bit of a rift between the two developing. Yeah, and so obviously after Chancellorsville, as everybody kind of picks up the pieces from that battle and they all start to reconvene in Richmond. Lee, Davis, the Secretary of War, they start discussing the military situation. Obviously, people are worried about the situation in the West, specifically what is Grant doing opposite Vicksburg, potential loss of control in the Mississippi. And, you know, again, our intent here today is not going to be a deep dive on why did Lee invade Pennsylvania. Once again, that would be a fascinating be episode, a great episode in its own right. But just just for a little bit of a context, Lee is, you know, in part arguing for a counteroffensive in the East uh, to help remove pressure in the West. But he wants Longstreet returned to his army to do that. Longstreet, in contrast, when he initially returns to Richmond, he first proposes that he be sent to Tennessee to help defeat Rosecrans and then move into Kentucky and Ohio. Again, is an idea to get Grant to be withdrawn from Vicksburg to kind of meet this new Confederate threat. So you've got Lee wanting what he wants. You've got Longstreet wanting what he wants. Ultimately, as history knows, Davis agreed with Lee. Longstreet gets reattached to the Army of Northern Virginia. And we undertake what becomes known as the Gettysburg Campaign. And we do see a little bit of meddling with Longstreet during this time. Mm, he's, yeah. he's critical of Braxton Bragg as commander of the Army of Tennessee. Maybe this is sowing the seeds of doubt that if somebody needs to replace Braxton Bragg, well, gee, maybe Lee's shining star, James Longstreet, might do that. Or if there is a replacement of Bragg, another 
individual that is available is his old friend Joseph Johnston. There we go, Joe Johnston again. So, you know, there's a lot of situations that might look favorable for Longstreet out west. Mm -hmm. And so we cannot offset that, yes, there are military justifications why Longstreet's advocating what he does, but I think there's also some personal justifications here. An increased look to the west could only benefit James Longstreet. Yeah, now Longstreet is going to talk about that in the famous Wigfall letter that he's going to write to Confederate Center, or Lewis Wigfall on May 13th. But I want to hold off on that for now because it hasn't happened yet. And so we go into this planning for the summer campaign in Pennsylvania. And this is where, you know, kind of the Fredericksburg example creeps its way into the literature. This is what we talked about, you know, at the end of part one. Now, according to Longstreet, the invasion, and I'm going to pause there because I know there are some Gettysburg aficionados who do not like the term invasion. They prefer that it be called a raid. Fine, I'm using invasion. But anyways, the campaign was agreed upon with the understanding that the Confederates were not to deliver an offensive battle, that our campaign should be one of offensive strategy but defensive tactics. This is Longstreet writing after the war. Further, according to Longstreet, by mid-1863, the war had advanced far enough for us to see that a mere victory without decided fruits was a luxury we could not afford. Our numbers were less, and our resources were limited, while theirs were not. The Confederate victory at Fredericksburg had supposedly shown the advantage of receiving instead of giving attack. Heavy losses from offensive operations would deplete Southern manpower to such an extent that we should not be able to hold a force in the field. Longstreet insisted he and Lee agreed on fighting a defensive battle, quote, in a position of our own choosing as the, quote, ruling idea of the campaign. And perhaps more than anything right there, you kind of have the genesis of the so-called Lee Longstreet controversy. For me, when I look at this, I have a hard time envisioning Lee saying, you know what, yeah, I will commit to this of not knowing where the pieces are, what's happening. Maybe this is one of those, they would talk about this being best case scenario yeah. in there, that yeah. this is what we want to try to pursue. But I think Lee, as we talk about, Lee is a master at adapting to the situation in his front. Chancellorsville is a great example of that. Yeah, so right. I would have a hard time of Lee sort of putting on those kind of handcuffs, if you will, saying, this is what we're going to do, mm -hmm. forget anything else. Now, of course, those discussions he has with Longstreet, we don't really know. Right. In the end, it's Longstreet's version right. that we get. We and don't have... Meeting minutes have not survived. You know, yeah. the, the importance of good meeting minutes, I might add. Absolutely. It's critical to have good meeting minutes. But what we see is this is a very challenging period because we just we don't have enough of the information now lee the closest we get is in april of 1868 he is going to say that he never made right. any such promise and had never thought of doing any such thing once again this is five years after the fact mm -hmm. but yet in his post-battle report lee is going to write it had not been intended to fight a general battle at such a distance from our base unless attacked by the enemy i gotta pause there because it's a passage that is a passage in Lee's report that I use a lot, and I think, you know, given the context of Lee's report, people overlook that passage all the time. But people are not aware there is a sentence that says it had not been intended to fight a battle unless attacked by the enemy. 
folks, you can say we're overemphasizing it. That is a defensive battle that Lee is describing. And again, it's it's been in Lee's report forever, hiding in plain sight, and it just always surprises people when you point that out to them. And I think for the Confederates, the best case scenario in this upcoming campaign is to invade in South Central Pennsylvania and have a second Manassas type battle. Mm -hmm. One that you can potentially destroy a large segment of the Union Army, which is needed. You need that grand victory. So, yeah, I think, you know, are these things they're talking about? Sure. But to the point where Lee would say, this is my exact plan. This is what I'm committing to. Well, right. Yeah, yeah, and I think Longstreet's a smart guy. He he know he knows they can't commit to that. Now again, you know, you think about it. Longstreet's last major battle with the army was Fredericksburg. He misses the offensive, the maneuvering successes at Chancellorsville, but he also is smart enough to realize, okay, at the end of Chancellorsville, the armies are back in the same position. So really, what the hell did you gain out of that? And you know, again, this siege, this protracted siege, sort of. Uh, mentality at Suffolk. So I certainly think it likely and probable that Longstreet did come in with, in a defensive frame of mind. But yeah, Lee's not going to agree to all that. There's probably a free-flowing exchange of ideas. And again, the Lee supporters get angry at this notion of Longstreet getting agreements out of his commanding officer and anything like that. But they probably got this free-flowing exchange of ideas. And given what Lee acknowledged in his own report, I do think it likely that Lee probably said, yes, you know, if the situation warrants, if it is prudent, dare I say, if practicable, we will fight on the defensive. But there's no way there's an ironclad agreement here to do that. And in many ways, I think as generals set out to start a campaign, you almost hear it in, in the sense of a, of a football game, coaches game plan. Mm-hmm what they want to do you know okay if we get this situation this is what we want to try to do if we're in this situation this is what we're going to try to do i think generals do very much the same thing if the if the conditions are this we want to try to do that also understand that conditions change and i think what we see is lee understands that he's going to be outnumbered in this campaign so having the initiative is critical you don't get the initiative by going on the defense now you can use defense is a means to continue that or put mm-hmm. yourself in an advantageous position. But yeah, I think we have to really think about what is Lee's objectives here and how is he going to obtain that? I think that goes to a lot of why Lee makes the decisions he does and ultimately maybe the rub between Lee and Longstreet. Yeah, and I think we touched on this in part one. It's it's really an age-old military question, not one you know limited to just Lee and Longstreet. But, you know, an, an army, a power, a government, a team, uh, that is reduced to fighting purely on the defensive will be eventually overwhelmed. So you have to mix that up with counter strikes when appropriate. And as we keep coming back to, uh, maneuver. One other thing though that I just kind of want to add about this whole conversation is, you know, the Longstreet critics will often argue that his own writings were primarily influenced by the post-war dynamics, the lost cause of the late 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, and that sort of thing. But I do want to point out that his earliest version that I know of actually appears in William Swinton's Campaigns of the Army of the Potomac in 1866, which, although after the war, is long before all of the Lee Longstreet stuff, you know, embittered his personality. 
And as early as 1866, Swinton was crediting a conversation with Longstreet where, according to Swinton via Longstreet, upon entering the campaign, General Lee expressly promised his corps commanders that he would not assume a tactical offensive, but force his antagonists to attack. And this is where it gets kind of ugly. Having, however, gotten a taste of blood in the considerable success of the first day, the Confederate commander seems to have lost that equipoise in which his faculties commonly move, and he determined to give battle. So the first part of that, you know, is good. Second part of that, uh, you know, I might give Longstreet some PR suggestions here and say, you know, when talking about Robert E. Lee, don't say he got a taste of blood. That's not going to win you many friends in the Old South. And it's interesting, the, the note, he promised his core commanders. Yeah, yeah. Well, where's Richard Yule talking about this? <laughs> where's A.P. Hill talking about this? Even though he's technically a division commander, where is Jeb Stewart talking about this? So, maybe once again, yeah. I mean, I think we have to, it is very much a Longstreet-centric conversation, but where are the others that would shed light onto this? And, you know, we kind of talk about, even back in our East Cavalry Field episodes, if nobody else is talking about it, it's hard to sometimes think, well, maybe it was actually there. And this is a, a very interesting point where Longstreet is arguing that, but he says, you know, he gets the taste of blow on July 1st. Well, the situation had changed on July 1st. Lee is, I think, playing the hand that he has been dealt to the best of his ability he thinks he can. Yeah, yeah. And, and also, Longstreet is not on the field in the morning of July 1st as this is going on. He's coming in after the fact. Yeah, and, and I know I'm the one who brought it up. If we could hold July 1st mm -hmm. for a little more until we get there, because there's, I think, some interesting observations there. Um, the other thing, if I could, let me just throw in now the famous letter that Longstreet writes to Confederate Senator Wigfall on May 13th. So it's clearly after they've had all this, um, you know, conference and exchange and kind of decided on the summer campaign. And Longstreet critics and even some supporters uh, will kind of point to this letter and say, aha, Longstreet did support General Lee. Not so fast. Here's what he writes. He writes to Wigfall, There is a fair prospect of forward movement. That being the case, we can spare nothing from the army to reinforce the in the West. So now he's kind of abandoned this Western idea. Quote, On the contrary, we shall have use for our own and the balance of our armies if we could get them. If we could cross the Potomac with 150,000 men, I think we could demand of Lincoln to declare his purpose. End quote. He then goes on to talk about matters in the West, and then he picks up again. In fact, quote, in fact, we should make a grand effort against the Yankees this summer. Every available man and means should be brought to bear against them. If we had the men that our papers call for, we could either destroy them or bring terms before the summer is ended. When I agreed with the secretary and yourself about sending troops west, it was under the impression that we would be obliged to remain on the defensive here. But the prospect of an advance changes that aspect of affairs to us entirely. End quote. I think what this shows of Longstreet is that whatever views he advocated, the decision has been made, mm -hmm. and he is not necessarily brooding. He's being a good soldier. Right, He's, right. Let's go in with this. This and, is what we need, and let's do it. And one thing I think with Longstreet, I always find him to be a very adaptive 
individual. He seems to kind of be able to blend in wherever he is at. And I think this is one of those situations where, okay, I didn't get my what I wanted in my argument, but I'm going to do everything I can to do this. This is not, I didn't get my way and I'm yeah, pouting. Right, exactly. Now, which a lot of critics already point to that and say, okay, this is already examples of that. Yeah, and the other thing critics do is they say, ah, he was lying. This is wholesale enthusiasm for the campaign. Well, yeah, again, he's sort of accepted this is where we're going to go with it. The other thing, too, is there's at least three instances where he is clearly saying, if we have more men. Mm -hmm. So I think the thing that gets lost on a lot of people, Longstreet is clearly lobbying for, hey, can you help us make sure the Army of Northern Virginia gets more men? It's going to be great if we get more men. I mean, as we know, the Army ultimately doesn't cross the Potomac with anywhere near 150,000 guys, but clearly part of what he's doing is lobbying being for more men, which I think is what a good subordinate of his influence should be doing. And Wigfall is really one of the major figures of this Western bloc. I mean, he's a powerful senator, yep. so Longstreet could also be kind of running some interference yeah, here. Yeah, you know, yeah. hey, if I can convince him to maybe keep the Western bloc calm yeah. down a little bit more, this we might be it. advantageous. So I think this shows Longstreet can be very shrewd politically yeah, when yeah, he needs to yeah. be. He understands the dynamics, and I think it is a, yeah, with the right conditions, I think Longstreet is open to the idea of it, which, once again, he has an aggressive streak to him. He is not this passive defensive general that, once again, though, the circumstances dictate the path we take. We haven't mentioned Coddington in a while, so I'm going to mention Coddington. Yeah, so Longstreet critics, um, including Coddington, basically argued that it shows Longstreet fully in support and that he was being disingenuous when he later claimed that Lee made these defensive promises. I'm sorry, Professor Coddington. You know the high esteem that I hold you in, but I do not agree with you on this point. Coddington. And it's also the idea that if someone changes their mind, that happens all the time. No, you, historical you can't figures can't change their mind. You can't do that. You know, I mean, okay, hey, I argued for this. But this is a good <laughs> idea, too. I'm okay with that. You know, it's this idea that everybody has to be in this own camp that if you're not. And they never deviate. No, they never deviate. No, no. Right. Because right. no, we, we have one letter and they never deviated from that no. opinion. Right. And also, we don't understand or have accounts of the of the communications that Lee is having with Longstreet. You know, we don't, we're not in the tent with them as they're talking about these things. So we could see a shifting of the Longstreet's opinion, which the letters suggest is probably taking place, or he's at least at peace with the decision that the army is going to make, and he can live with it. Mm -hmm. So a couple of things. Um, I think we had a listener question about Longstreet's role in Stewart's orders. I think we did have a question yes. about that. Okay, so maybe we're not going to deep dive on it now because we are working to get a, uh, a friend and colleague, Chris Army, on here to maybe do a deep dive on Stewart's ride, which I know a lot of people would enjoy. So we're not going to deep dive on it now, but we did get a listener question. And I guess what I would say is, when Stuart received his orders to take three brigades and really pass around the Federal Army, Longstreet agreed with it. Longstreet concurred with it. And uh, from what, you know, my interpretation of it has always been that Longstreet believed it would help conceal the Army's intentions as the main body moved north. So, you know, what I take about that, first of all, if you read a lot of the communications going back and forth, lead to, lead to Stuart and then to Longstreet and then back again or that, some of them are confusing as hell. I mean, they talk about, you know, this way, that way, or that. And I, I almost kind of think 
the three of them over-communicated it, which is one of the reasons why maybe issues arose later. But again, again, I also see Longstreet being brought into the Army Commander's confidence. General Longstreet, what do you think about this? You know, and things of that nature. And that's how I've always viewed them. Yeah, and this is a part and parcel of what good commanders do. Yeah. Yeah. You try to get as many views as you can. And what I think is interesting, Longstreet plays a really important role in Lee's thinking here. And and if you set out the campaign, you can make the argument, maybe we put Longstreet as the vanguard mm-hmm. leading this. Yeah. But I think Lee likes having Longstreet nearby. He yeah, likes with that. him. I almost like to say Longstreet is Lee's security blanket in some respects. And also the idea is that if Ewell gets into trouble, Longstreet can get his guys there. If we get stopped, Longstreet can hold the situation until Yule can get here. So Longstreet kind of becomes kind of the X factor of how you want to deploy him in this. And I think their thought process is by having Stuart go around the Union Army, it's going to slow them down. It's going to allow them to maybe gain more distance between themselves and their opponent. And Longstreet, I think, is happy to be brought in onto this. Yeah. I think he yeah. likes feeling that I'm part of the inner circle Offering here. Offering his suggestions. Yeah, I think yeah. that feels very good. And if you're Lee and you have a subordinate that is maybe starting to look elsewhere, you maybe try to expand mm-hmm. their role a little mm-hmm. bit more in yeah. your organization. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of that at play. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And the other thing, too, we met Harrison, the scout, the spy, the actor. Uh, we met him a little while ago. Again, as we start moving north here, Longstreet will show his diligence in basically employing Harrison's services once again. Depending on what account you read, he's either told to kind of, you know, work himself in behind the enemy lines. Other accounts say he's instructed to go as far as Washington. But basically, the the idea is to just secure any information, as much information about enemy movements as he can, and then report back to Longstreet when he has intel of node and i always kind of like the exchange it kind of shows a a wry and almost sarcastic sense of humor on longstreet's part uh harrison reportedly says where shall i find you general and longstreet replies with the army i shall be sure to be with it and with that you know harrison goes off hopefully he's not performing shakespeare but you know he's off doing his job for longstreet while the army heads north you know, it's all fun and games until he breaks out into a soliloquy. Which, if you listen to our two-part Gettysburg the Movie episode way back in Season 1, you know how we feel about that. So now we have the Army of Northern Virginia moving in through Maryland into Pennsylvania. It now brings us to what we have dubbed that critical day of June 28th. Season 1, Episode 2. Yes, very, all the way back. Our practical inaugural effort. That's how important we think June 28th is. So what we now have is June 28th, Lee and Longstreet are in the Chambersburg area when a visitor comes to their camp. And I'll let Jim pick it up from there. Am I doing the movie version of the visit, or should I do the real one? Like, is he going through the picket line? You know, hazardous I, I, too. I, I don't want to talk about the uh, the Santa Confederate. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's ignore him. Okay, let's do the real version. The guy time. looking through his telescope in broad daylight, yes. playing the banjo, none of that stuff. All right, all right, folks. But I know as I'm talking, you're going to be envisioning the opening scenes of the movie in your head, and that's fine because we indulge 
we indulge that sort of thing. But yeah, basically, the long story short is while Lee's army is now by this point spread out throughout Pennsylvania. You know, you got Ewell and Rhodes up near Carlisle getting ready to move on Harrisburg. You got Jubal Early kind of northeast out near York and all that stuff. You got A.P. Hill coming um, up around through Cashtown and, and things like that. The army is spread out. We still haven't heard from Jeb Stewart in a couple of days. Lee and Longstreet are camped outside the bustling and lovely city of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, which in of itself will be the topic of another upcoming episode, so stay tuned for that. I digress. Harrison comes into camp and basically gives Lee and Longstreet the intel that the Army of the Potomac is on the move, has crossed the Potomac, is moving through Maryland, and according to Harrison, has the potential to cut off Lee's supply and communication lines uh, on the other side of South Mount. This is big news. Lee is initially skeptical. You know, Lee reportedly does not believe in the value of scouts and spies, which again is another strike in Longstreet's favor. You know, this idea of Longstreet being the modern general using every means of information at his disposal. So it's, you know, it's a good one and another one in Longstreet's favor, but it tells Lee he's got to pull the army back concentrate to protect the South Mountain Gap. The army is going to concentrate either at Cashtown or Gettysburg. And basically at this time, Lee is now starting to commit to fight, you know, ultimately what we know will become the Battle of Gettysburg. And it's an interesting period for Lee. And, and I've often said June 28th, outside of a battle day, July 1st, 2nd, or 3rd, we could argue is the most important day in the Gettysburg campaign, because as we see now, June 28th, the day where Lee loses the initiative, mm-hmm. he stops driving the action. He's now reacting to the Union Army. And some might argue Lee never again gets that initiative in the campaign. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It is interesting, though, that who is nearby when these decisions have to be made? Longstreet. So this is, I think, showing, once again, as I, as I described him, Longstreet's Lee's security blanket. Yeah. He's my dependable guy that I know can help me get through this. And I think initially Lee thinks this is perfect. Let's let the army rally to who I have now. And then we go from there. Of course, as we will see, situation changes drastically when contact is made. First on June 30th at Gettysburg, and then eventually on July 1st. Yeah, and you just reminded me of, uh, again, it's an often used quote from Arthur Freeman, the British military observer, but... You know, he talks about during this period that Longstreet is, quote, never far from General Lee, who relies very much upon his judgment. So, again, you have another contemporaneous, you know, version of of Lee and Longstreet being in close mutual discussion and, you know, strategizing with each other and that sort of thing. And Fremantle tells us that that that's the case. Now, Now, this never comes up much in the Gettysburg literature, and I think, frankly, it should. But don't you think if Longstreet is the guy who favors time, preparation, looking for the defensive battle, it never comes up in the Gettysburg literature as much as it should. But don't you think finding that prepared position to protect the defenses of South Mountain and forcing the Union Army into attacking us... I'm just thinking if I'm Longstreet, the wheels are already spinning, and I'm thinking this could be it. This could be exactly what we talked about. We'll get there first. We'll prepare. We'll make them attack us. 
You would have to think so. I mean, this is, I think what Longstreet's looking at is we've committed to an offensive campaign. Right. Now let's bring in the defensive as a means to draw the enemy to us. Now, once again, I think this is also the idea of, okay, draw the enemy to us, but then what do we do with them? Right. We've right. got Hill. We've got Yule moving around. The idea is, who's to say that, I use the example, another second Manassas. Mm-hmm. This time yep. it's Longstreet that's going to hold right. them. Exactly. And then it's Yule that comes in. You know, they, these are lots of options. So I want to caution listeners into thinking that what we're saying is that Longstreet's thinking just a, a Fredericksburg-style battle, necessarily. I think it's going to have some component of defensive, but let's don't assume it's going to be Marie's Heights version yeah, right. 2.0. Yeah, right, right, right. Out of cash down or something like that. Yeah, right? no, I think they're still going to think about, you know, what can we do to score this decisive mm-hmm. victory? And I think really what we look at is second Manassas is the closest that Lee really ever comes to that of really being able to attain what he's looking for. Yeah, yeah. And so we say, is it possible? Well, I think Lee thinks yeah. it is. Yeah. And just some speculation were thrown out there on the table. Obviously, we know it doesn't happen. And so obviously what happens instead, we know Lee's army with the fighting on July 1st gets drawn east of South Mountain towards the charming crossroads town of Gettysburg. And we know that's where the f- battle is fought on the first day. We know that Ewell's Corps Portions of A.P. Hill's Third Corps are going to combine to drive Union forces off of the fields north and west of Gettysburg. By late afternoon, early evening, Union forces are going to be rallying on the heights south of town, which is going to bring Longstreet back into the story. And some could say what happens in a small part on July 1st, Union Army becomes engaged, the Confederates, a counterattack coming in allows them to drive them from the field. That's a small version of, I think, what Lee and Longstreet might have wanted, of maybe a bigger action yeah, event, where it's not just two corps, but it's it's the entire army being yep. involved here. Yep. So, once again, that speaks to that idea of how can we use the defense as a means to further our offensive strategy. But now it's an interesting point because Lee has won a victory on July 1st. He's driven Union troops from the field. Lee's real challenge now is what do we do? How do we follow this up? Where do we go? And this is where I think we're going to see some divergence between Lee and Longstreet a little bit on July 1st. Yeah, so obviously Longstreet's core, as probably many of us know, was backed up in a traffic jam on the Chambersburg Pike, coming in through the West uh, throughout the course of the day. Some of Edward Johnson's Divisional trains pulled into the road ahead of them, which only further created this this traffic jam. And so the First Corps, while the thunder of battle is going on, you know, 10 miles or so away at Gettysburg, the First Corps in many instances is just sitting by the road waiting for their chances to move. Private John S. McNeely of the 21st Mississippi wrote, Passing through the South Mountain defiles shortly after noon, our trained ears caught the low and distant muttering of the cannon's opening roar, ushering in the unordered, unexpected, and fateful battle. So with the troops stuck, though, Longstreet decides to ride ahead, and he rides ahead to Gettysburg, where he's going to find Lee on or around Seminary Ridge in the late afternoon. Now, according to Longstreet, he observed Lee, quote, watching the enemy concentrate on the opposite hill, and as we all know from kind of the standard historiography, Longstreet is reportedly quite pleased by the developments, and he suggests 
to his senior officer, quote, All we have to do is throw our army around their left, and we shall interpose between the Federal Army and Washington. He further considered it advantageous to get a strong position and wait, and if they fail to attack us, we shall have everything in condition to move back tomorrow night in the direction of Washington, selecting beforehand a good position into which we can place our troops to receive battle the next day. Eric? When we give our battlefield tours, would you not agree with me that in terms of the Longstreet question, one of the most commonly asked visitor questions are along the lines of, where did Longstreet want to go? Why didn't Lee listen to him? Sounds like a great idea. It's certainly it's a commonly held notion that I often deal with. Yeah, I think that's often, well, where would they have gone if they would have done this? I do want to point out real quick, you talk about the ride that Longstreet makes towards Gettysburg. Yeah, yeah. There's a really great account from Anderson's division. Yeah. That is Anderson's guys who had known Longstreet, they've been reorganized. Anderson's guys see Longstreet riding up and they start cheering him. And like, here comes the old bulldog. Another nickname for him. Oh, yeah. We you forgot know, about the bulldog. You know, here he comes. There's going to be f- hard fighting ahead, boys. You know, here comes Longstreet. And- if you listen to part one, you know they're saying, here comes the hammer. Yeah. James the Hammer Longstreet. Or would they say it's hammer time? It's oh, they could, they could. Yeah, we did forget about the bulldog, but that's another. Once good again, one. a good, you know, another yeah. great nickname, better than old Pete. Right, no doubt about that. So you're right there. There is a great account of that. And so, should we continue back to? Yeah. The- so back to the idea of where he's going to move. Whenever I'm confronted with this on tours, I try to give some counterpoints to it. Yeah. I said one, yes, in theory it makes sense, but there's a difference between what we can do theoretically and what we can actually do as an army at this moment. I think what Lee is looking at is I've got the enemy there. They're already here. If they begin to move away, they're going to move closer to Washington, closer to their defenses. I'm not going to be able to get to it. Basically, second Manassas all over again. The other issue is who's going to screen that movement? Who's going to secure those paths? Who's going to see to it that the wagon train is going to be moved back? That takes time, which Leah feels that he does not have time in his favor. That if he's going to make a move, he's got an isolated element of the Union Army here. He could take the risk of finding a more advantageous battlefield somewhere else, or he could take what he has now, which at least by the end of July 1st into early morning July 2nd, Lee, I think, still feels he has an advantage here. Mm-hmm. Yep. So where do you take that advantage? Do you take it here at Gettysburg or on an unknown battlefield in a future date? Yeah, I mean, suffice to say, there's a lot of logistical challenges to Longstreet's proposal, you know, which surprises me because as we demonstrated in part one, Longstreet has clearly demonstrated himself as a well-rounded soldier. He is not one-dimensional. He is not only experienced at infantry. I mean, the guy, the guy has experience in almost doing everything, but there's a lot of tactical challenges. First of all, you don't know the position of the entire Army of the Potomac, and if you swing around in that direction, you could in fact get hit by more Union troops coming up from Maryland, and now you're basically stuck between the guys coming up from Maryland and the guys that are here in Pennsylvania. That's a problem. You mentioned screening. Where is Jeb Stewart's cavalry? At this hour, you would have to basically pull... Ewell's Corps from the northeast side of town and swing them all around. So just, you know, in a lot of different ways, even before we talk about Lee's favorable situation, just the move itself has got a lot of problems. Now, what I think would be interesting, and folks, this is just speculation, 
But what would be interesting would be to take Longstreet's Corps, which, by the way, is handicapped because he doesn't even have Pickett's Division or Law's Brigade at this point, would be interesting to kind of swing Longstreet's Corps down towards Frederick and see how the Yankees respond to that. But again, you know, you've got a lot of problems with that. And I think that's the point, too, having to move the army towards the Frederick area. Right. You know the Union Army's concentrated right. there, but where exactly is that? Exactly. Depending on which side of the valley they're on, this is a challenge. It, and yeah, I think Lee, you know, when Lee is thinking of moving Ewell, I often have wondered, is that potentially in case Lee does go right. with Longstreet's exactly. movement? That would make more sense that you move Ewell in. You can then shift Hill. You can shift Longstreet. Mm-hmm. You can do that. So. I think this shows that, as we often say, it's a very fluid situation. Lee has not committed to a plan. This could be almost like a second Fredericksburg. You know, then you have Ewell pinning the Yankees down here while the rest of the Army threatens, you know, a different city, Frederick or Washington in in this case. And Lee has had a lot of success using a small portion of his Mm -hmm. Army to pin down the Army of the Potomac to allow to a maneuver somewhere else. So for the person out there who's listening, who says it couldn't happen because Lee was outnumbered, folks, the war is replete with examples where Lee can make that work. And also, I, w- I go back to Lee's foremost military role model, mm-hmm. Napoleon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Napoleon was often outnumbered. Yeah. That's the story of Napoleon. He's often outnumbered. And he uses the ability of maneuver, finding that central position, and being able to de- deliver yeah. decisive results. So, yeah, it can be done. I think what we're showing is that I think there's a tendency to think that Lee is very much, I've made my decision. I'm not thinking of anything else. Yeah. I think there's a lot of thoughts going through Lee's mind. And what Lee has to do is pick the right outcome that he feels is the most reasonable he can do. What can I actually do here? Well, and perhaps the number one reason why there is that perception that Lee is being rigid and inflexible comes from Longstreet's post-war writing. He had a taste for blood. I mean, exactly. His equipoise was, was you know, disrupted and, and all of that stuff. And I he, hate when that happens. And even, yeah, my equipoise. Yeah, my, when yeah. gets disrupted, I'm just out for the whole day. You know, in one of the accounts, Longstreet even goes as far to say until enough blood was shed to appease him. Again, Longstreet, I love you as a Civil War soldier. You're not the most effective PR man, and I'll, I'll kind of leave it at that. So, yeah, Lee surprises Longstreet by supposedly responding to the contrary. No, the enemy is there, and I am going to attack him there. Of which Longstreet allegedly reminds him of our original plans. But Longstreet also noticed that lack of communication from Stuart was causing Lee considerable anxiety. Seeing that Lee was, quote, in no frame of mind to listen to further argument, Longstreet deferred the matter until the following morning. Okay, so we talked about the favorable situation that we've got here at Gettysburg. You know, the other thing, too, is, you know, we always kind of say, well, but Lee has allowed himself to be drawn too far east at South Mountain. But the other thing, too, when you think about it, this here, too, still keeps him close enough to the mountain gaps. His back is still to the gaps. The Yankees are really not going to get around him without a fight. And yet, at the same time, The advantage Gettysburg has that South Mountain doesn't is the road network, and particularly we can get to the road network and potentially cut off the Union Army from Washington. 
So as Gettysburg enthusiasts always, you know, they're all raising their hand now and saying, the Baltimore Pike! Yes, you've got that advantage now, though, where you can potentially cut the Union Army off from Washington, which would have been harder to do if you were back at South Mountain. So Lee, maneuver. Before, as we know, going to have to go offensive to do it. And it's interesting the term Longstreet uses the anxiety yeah. that Lee has. And and I've often tried to put myself in Lee's shoes on July 1st and that afternoon. I think what you're seeing is, yes, Lee is not so inflexible that he's not going to listen to other opinions. Right. But I think by the afternoon, early evening of July 1st, he's frustrated. Whether we can talk about what he wants to do with Yule or not, that doesn't happen. Hill is not being as yeah. maybe a team player as he would like to be. And here's Longstreet now saying, well, okay, here we are. Let's do something totally different. No, where the hell's Stewart? Yeah, right. You know, right. so I think at this point, Lee is thinking, all right, enough talking. It's time for action. Yeah, yeah. I want action. Yeah, and, and this is what I want. And this is what, and I think you also, the idea of if the enemy is there tomorrow, I've often wondered how we interpret that statement. Mm -hmm. You know, does he mean physically if the enemy is there on Cemetery Hill, Cemetery Ridge, or does he mean if the enemy's in that general vicinity tomorrow? I'm going to strike. The idea is if I can, I've faced an element of them the day before. We know we've engaged the first and the 11th Corps. There's other corps out there. What if yeah. we can still? It, it, yeah, yeah. And the, the thing, too, is, you know, you got to remember, Lee is used to a slow-moving Union Army. If there's a couple corps here, I can defeat them in detail and smash them up before the rest of these slow-moving Yankees get up here. Now, again, one of the great advantages and benefits of George Meade taking command is I think the Union Army gets here a heck of a lot faster than they probably would have under Joe Hooker. Kudos to George Meade. But from Lee's perspective, you're looking to defeat him in detail because you know from past experience, this Union Army, they're not going to move fast. They're going to they're going to have their own anxiety about Washington. Let's hit the guys that are here and let's hit them as fast as we can. And if the Union Army, the bulk of them are still around Frederick, mm -hmm. that's 35 miles. Yeah, here. right. Right. I can crush this element and then figure out what we'll do with the rest of them. It's at least a day's march away. Yeah, yeah, so I think there's, we have to, uh, we often tell folks, forget what you know, think about what they would have known in the moment. And the challenge of studying any battles, we know more than the participants in a lot of respects. We know where all the pieces are on the board. Lee doesn't. So Lee is trying to work with what he knows, the way this army has performed in the past. He's also knowing that, okay, there's going to be at least a turnover in command. So that means that it's not only a new army commander, mm -hmm. but that means there's probably a new corps commander, some mm -hmm. new division commanders. Yep. There's yep. going to be some slowness that takes place. It's going to take them a while to get organized. See, that's my Martin Sheen impression. Yeah, yeah, you know, so there's, this is where I think sometimes people like to point out that when Lee commits to the fighting on July 2nd, that somehow he's making this fatal error. Mm -hmm. I think in the moment he's making that decision, I think he's not thinking of it in terms of, yeah. This is a fatal error. I think this is the best option I have in front of me right now. Totally, totally agree. It's the best one on the table, which segues nicely into the passage from Lee's report. I don't know if we've done it on the show previously, but it's appropriate now. What Lee later says in his report is finding ourselves unexpectedly confronted by the Federal Army. It became a matter of difficulty to withdraw through the mountains with our large trains. At the same time, the country was unfavorable for collecting supplies while in the presence of the enemy's main body. A battle thus became, in a measure, unavoidable. Encouraged by the successful issue of the engagement of the first day, 
and in view of the valuable results that would ensue from the defeat of the army of General Meade, it was thought advisable to renew the attack. Now, you can maybe quibble about the whether we could or couldn't withdraw through South Mountain, and people have quibbled about whether or not that's valid. I can't argue with any point Lee has just laid out in his report in terms of why it's a good idea to continue the attack. And Lee has made his reputation on being aggressive. Lee doesn't gain anything in this campaign by playing it safe. And Lee understands the risk-reward. But I think, I don't want to use the term gambling, because it sounds if it's without thought. But I think, you know, Lee is willing to wager, I think, more risk for a potential greater reward. Because we have to remember, Lee's goal in coming into Pennsylvania is ultimately that decisive victory over the Union Army. Mm -hmm. Yeah, He's not going to get it by playing it safe. Lee has had a year of success. But he hasn't had the success. So Lee's looking at it. It may not be the battlefield of my choosing, but I think I have, at least in my mind, as speaking as Lee, the conditions favorable to achieve such. Yep. Uh, again, would agree with that. And so I think, you know, summarized kind of in layman's terms, this often asked question, why didn't Lee listen to Longstreet? Uh, you know, was Longstreet's idea a good one? I always summarize it by saying, yeah, it looks good on paper. But there's a lot of logistical, tactical challenges to making this happen. And quite frankly, I cannot, again, ignoring hindsight, ignore hindsight, I cannot fault any of Lee's decisions, reasons to stay at Gettysburg. So, you know, again, Longstreet's a good subordinate. You know, maybe the second Manassas example is got him kind of thinking... You know, again, he can be grim when he doesn't get his own way. Uh, he's supposedly very sober, very somber when he when he goes back to his camp that night. Uh, you know, Arthur Fremantle is going to find the universal feeling in the army was one of profound contempt for an enemy who they have beaten under so many disadvantages. But at night, Longstreet's very sober at dinner. He discusses the enemy's position is very formidable, and they would undoubtedly entrench themselves even more so during the night. I don't get the sense that Lee totally blows Longstreet off. I, I think don't he know. hears him out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, that's all I think any, we can only, that's all we can ever hope for for our boss. They'll at least listen to us. Yeah. Doesn't mean they take our idea. But I think, you know, Lee hears the options and doesn't think it's feasible. Yeah, yeah. And in the day now, Longstreet's going to go to do what can I do to achieve this victory? And I think we've probably demonstrated now with part one and part two, certainly going back to the summer of 1862, this give and take relationship does exist between Lee and Longstreet. But yeah, this is going to be one of those instances where Lee listens and says, no, we're going to do it my way. And, you know, how Longstreet adapts to that is, to me, always part of part of the the drama in the interest now of July 2nd, you know, which we're going to pick up in the next install. And what I also, as we lead into that, I do want to point right now, there's nothing that shows Longstreet is intending to drag his feet. No, hell no. And be petulant and, you know, screw the pooch here and, you know, no. There's none of that. I think as we go in from the evening of July 1st into July 2nd, Longstreet is preparing for his troops for a day of battle the Mm -hmm. next day. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, so none of the crazy card games that are going on in camp in the movie, you know, that kind of stuff isn't going on. They've got 
more important stuff to worry about. And, you know, I'll add to while Longstreet is doing this, Lee is still pondering what he's going to do. And this all goes into then him going over to visit Ewell and talking about situations on the Confederate left. So it's important to remember Lee has not settled on anything yet. I agree. He's probably getting a little annoyed, you know, at, at Longstreet, Hill, Ewell, and Stewart, you know, probably annoyed a little bit at all of them. But uh, Lee's still thinking about what he's going to do, and therefore any notion that Longstreet was ordered to come back with an attack at sunrise, you know, you can. T- I think you can take that off the table right away without even going into the whole historiography on it. Yeah, and I think the one thing we could probably fault Lee for on the first, and he meets with Longstreet. He's going to meet with Hill. He meets with Yule. But he never meets with them all together. Yeah, right. I think right. this would be a time when probably a council of war might be good to get everybody on yeah. the same page. Yep. That Longstreet's hearing what Yule is saying and vice versa because Lee becomes kind of the, the facilitator yep. of that. And yeah, I think it is that's the time Lee needs to bring everybody together and figure out what we want to do. And not to get ahead of ourselves, he's not going to do that after the fighting on July 2nd either. It's, you know, it's, I always say it's ironic, right? We criticize Meade for having councils of wars and trying to get support from subordinates. Uh, you know, we should be criticizing Lee for not doing that because it's, you know, he's going to pay the price for it. And I think, you know, over time, people have taken councils of war to almost seem as if you're abdicating your leadership. To me, it's getting a diverse group of opinions and then figuring out what we want to do. Mm-hmm. And and that's a good thing. You make decisions based on the information you have. So, yeah. so this is a good point to kind of leave our story, I think. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Because I think if we keep going too further, we start yeah. getting to July 2nd. Which is, is going a, to be a future installment. That is another installment of Longstreet at Gettysburg here. So, so I think this is a perfect point to end. But we hope that in these last two episodes, we have given you a great foundation to start thinking about Longstreet's performance here at the battle, why Longstreet does what he yeah. does, how does he handle these things. So I think there's a lot for our listeners to, to think about and to chew on here. And to unpack, as we like to say. Yeah, the point with part one was, I, at least for me, was to really give a better understanding of how broad and diverse Longstreet's resume is. I mean, this is an accomplished guy who can do a lot of stuff, and the Lee-Longstreet relationship as it begin- as it exists up until that point. But yeah, then we've kind of demonstrated, okay, what is the situation now as we close out July 1st? Eric, I can't tell you how excited I am. I can't wait to get to the next installment where we will pick up at sunrise, literally at sunrise on the morning of July 2nd. I can't wait. And the controversies await and as well. And let it begin. So as we close out another episode, Jim, once again, tell our wonderful super fans about tonight's sponsors. Yes, so James Longstreet is being thoroughly dissected here at Getty's Gear. 777 Baltimore Street in the old Gettysburg Village across from the Tour Center. Stop in, see them for all the Gettysburg-made items and apparel and dog treats and all the stuff we've been telling you about now for months. They want to see you here in the store, but if you can't make it to Gettysburg, call them at 717-334-3747 or email info at Gettysgear. Dot com for expedient order processing. Remember, it's history with a sense of style, and Gettysburg is the home of the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. 
We also want to thank again our new sponsor, TR Historical, who was with us once again. Uh, they're that family-owned business from Easton, PA. They offer one-stop shopping for people who love history like we do. They do not limit their historical swag to only Civil War items. They include all different periods of history, including the American Revolution, World War One, World War Two. So you got to check them out and check out their line of T-shirts, bookmarks, magnets, stickers, drinkware, strategy games. I love the strategy games. That's why I keep harping on this stuff. Uh, you know, you can refight the Battle of Gettysburg in your own home, thanks to our friends at TR Historical. So there's too much stuff for me to mention. Visit their website, trhistorical.com. Email them, support at trhistorical.com. Remember, they have free U.S. shipping. Worldwide shipping is available by request for all of our super fans. And Eric, how many countries are we up to now? We are actually at my last count this week. We are up to 70 foreign nations. 70 foreign nations. The Battle of Gettysburg podcast bringing the world together during this troubled times. And I can think of nobody better equipped to facilitate bringing the world together than TR Historical. And the way to do that is to superfans use the promo code SUPERFAN at checkout to save 10% off of your order. Once again, trhistorical.com. Thank you for being a sponsor of this show. And more importantly, thank you for bringing the world together. And as we're giving out thank yous, we want to once again thank you, our super fans, for all the support you have given us through the years and all the support you're continuing to give us. We will see you next time. Take care, folks. This has been the Battle of Gettysburg podcast.